0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Clifford Chance podcast, where our experts discuss pressing issues and trends faced by the business world today. This is the sixth in our Clifford Chance on Credit podcast series, where we look at topical issues and trends in the debt markets. Uh, and in particular, we look at debt and credit investments by funds and asset managers. Uh, now, the focus of today's session uh, is fund financing, uh, and we've got three of our leading experts. Uh, to take us through some of the legal, regulatory, and commercial aspects of uh, that topic. So, uh, my name is Simon Crown, and I am joined by Andrew Husden, uh, by Julia Sibina, and Oliver Marcuse. Um, And let's start um, by talking to Andrew. So, Andrew, let's start start with uh, Capital Call Facilities, if we could. So, they've been a traditional tool uh, of raising bridge finance for funds so there's been obviously a lot of discussion about uh, pre and, and post-covid uh, uh, situations here can, can you just talk us through that
1: well hi Simon. i mean I, I was reading an article the other day which told me that the, that the pre-covid period had been characterized by a rate to the bottom driven by rampant bank competition which had in turn resulted in declining LPA standards, structuring investor diligence, and now post-COVID, we are seeing this restoration of lender primacy, is how it was described. And it painted a fairly binary picture, but one that, in my experience, didn't didn't really ring true. Um, personally, the least sophisticated partnership and finance documentation that I've encountered was a decade or so ago, when I first started working on fund finance transactions, and since then, we've seen a litany of positive developments in the market. Notably, uh, legal practitioners have grown enormously in experience, with dedicated fund finance lawyers who understand intimately the fund formation documentation and vice versa. Uh, fund formation lawyers who understand, if not the detail of the finance documents, at, at least the key requirements in terms of you know borrowing guarantee sort of security requirements etc. Um, the market's grown considerably. And that influx of parties has resulted in a much higher degree of scrutiny and sophistication, including from investors, ILPA, Howard Marks, and, of course, the Fund Finance Association, which now operates three hugely well-attended conferences a year in APAC, US, and Europe. And, you know, finally, there's, there's just deal ill-size, right? These are no longer 20, 30 million working capital lines, but they're multi-billion dollar, multi-year facilities with large syndicates. And they attract a commensurate level of legal and commercial and... Credit scrutiny. So, I mean, my view is that the the level of sophistication and diligence had been growing really quite significantly pre-Covid, and and then of course we had a brush, right? You know, it's the collapse of one of the world's fastest-growing PE funds with 13 billion of assets under management and a couple of bridge facilities in the mix. Now, I'm not going to go into the detail of those transactions, but suffice to say, if there was ever any doubt about whether or not investors cared about residual NAV or fund mismanagement or fraud when being asked to pay in capital, a barge you know, put that question to bed. Investors do care about fund behavior, they do care about fraud, they do care about nav. And the jurisdiction in which all that plays out and the quality of your security package is absolutely critical to a, a lender's outcome. And I think the you know the banks responded accordingly. You know, unsecured or power utility transactions are now quite rare. Lenders are focused on waves of set-off and defence in the fund docs. They do care about cross collateralization amongst parallel fund borrowers. They do care about investor overcall provisions. You know the, the the right to ask performing investors to pick up a shortfall due to non-performing investors. They're alert to clean-down provisions in the fund docs. So I think my view is that this process of greater sophistication and diligence and awareness it started you know a long time ago and was accelerated due to abrasion, you know, perhaps more so due to COVID, but certainly wasn't caused by it.
0: Okay. All right. Thanks, Andrew. And and that development that you talk about in respect of uh, the push towards greater sophistication, greater bank diligence, I mean, is, is all of that one-sided in favor of the lenders?
1: Uh, n- 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 no, and, and, you know, absolutely not. And there, there has been, you know, really quite significant sponsor pushback to you know, the, the sort of the steady bank march. Um but, but but it's it's largely been in terms of you know a lot of commercial um, latitude, greater flexibility to incur debt at the fund level, um, incorporating certain leverage style protections in terms of the material adverse effect or change of control and other key definitions, negotiating sanctions clauses, transfer restrictions, and that that sort of stuff. Um, you know perhaps greater flexibility in terms of how the you know the accordion, the upsize or the extension mechanics work for. Um f- providing for a limited ability to draw down capital, even at acceleration. Yeah, and of course, pricing. Um But I think even with the strongest sponsors, there's an acceptance that you know, the fund documents need to work, the finance documents need to be properly drafted, and proper diligence needs to be completed, which sort of increasingly includes detailed review of side letter and sub- subscription agreements.
0: Okay, all right. Um, thank you. So, um, but is is have you seen
1: any difference pre and and post COVID? Uh, yeah, yeah. Notwithstanding what we've just said, I mean, there clearly has have been some differences. You know, there is there is pricing dislocation in varying amounts. Um, lenders are perhaps being more cautious in terms of credit concerns and capital allocation. Um, I mean, some transactions have seen the introduction of a, of a NAV covenant to supplement the borrowing base. Um, I mean, you know, pr- practically, you know, some deals may be happening a little bit more slowly. But, but I mean, fundamentally, I don't think that experienced lenders are conducting themselves in, in a substantially different fashion or <laughs> sort of, sort of suddenly discovering the need to have a bankable structure in their diligence that you know they have been unaware of. Um, Pre, pre-COVID.
0: pre Okay, all right, good. So so in addition to this sort of rebalancing or increased um, focus uh, by by lenders, uh, uh, have you been seeing any other
1: structural changes in this market? Uh, you, you, yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, the, the hunt for, um, you know, sort of, you know, bank and investor capital is, is a clear focus for uh, sponsors and, you know, they've been, very innovative in that respect, you know, we've seen the accordions, upsizes achieved not via the vanilla upsize of the existing facility, but but via a differently priced tranche in order to attract new lenders, Um, we've seen complicated structuring to access investor capital that hasn't traditionally participated in uncalled commitments, Um, we've seen second lien arrangements, we've seen a rise in bank syndication, so underwritten upsizes that are then sold down. So there's actually there has been quite a lot of innovative structuring and, and pricing there. Yeah.
0: Okay. And, and when you're talking about that, is that is that just in the in the capital call or sort of bridge financing space, or is it also in the in the, the nav
1: space? Absolutely both. I mean, you know, we've we've seen you know ever greater sophistication, complexity in the, in the whole spectrum. You know, capital call facilities, but also nav, and also across. The variety of nav deals you know loans against lp interests or the secondaries funds loans to direct lending funds loans to PE funds all of which have largely become more more sophisticated in in recent years you know the, the, the days of lending to a fund and you know just taking a share pledge without asset diligence are now increasingly rare and understanding you know those assets their jurisdictions and how the financial covenant security and enforcement package works you know that that's now a huge point of focus for lenders you know Particularly in times of, of potential distress
0: and um how are sponsors responding to, to this scrutiny and is there any is there any resistance there
1: um, yeah well, I think as ever wherever possible um, you know that there's yeah i mean you know what example you know sort of private equity funds who have been looking at um exploring you know nav lending arrangements whether making distributions to investors pending realisation of assets, or to fund follow-on investments, but those those um, those sponsors, those PE houses, have been rightfully concerned that a downturn in the market and associated valuations could, could result in LTV triggers being breached, security being prematurely enforced, and the the fund assets sold off at deeply discounted pricing into an illiquid market. Um, and so some of the, the sponsor pushback there. Has been to try and limit the, the bank exposure to and security over the assets. So you know, rather than lending into the fund directly and granting security over the, the entirety of the fund assets, um, you know, a loan can be made to an SPV, which is you know, guaranteed and secured by only certain of the fund assets. You know, with the rest remaining sort of unencumbered and, and not you know, you know, guaranteed or or in, in indebted. Um, or, or rather than allowing an event of default to result in immediate acceleration of the debt and security, you know there are lengthy grace periods built in to allow the sponsors to consensually dispose of assets and discharge the debt. And then you've got you know other arrangements involving preferred equity, which go one step further um, with sponsors looking to raise funding via structures that expose the fund not to a secured debt instrument, but rather to a preferred equity instrument. You know which may come with step-up rights in margin and a priority cash sweep if things go wrong. But fundamentally, it is an equity instrument, which at its heart looks to avoid the holders stepping in to take control of the fund and, and its assets, which is, of course, always the risk with debt.
0: Okay, great. Thanks, um, Andrew. So we've been hearing a lot about uh, preferred equity arrangements, you know, back levering, hybrid arrangements. Um, but you know, is there actually an established market there?
1: Well, there's clearly a growth in funds and capital raisings by those funds, um, that, that are willing to make available preferred equity arrangements and a corresponding appetite on the part of banks to stand behind those arrangements. You know, the sort of the, this is the kind of concept of back leverage, but the pricing in terms, including critically, you know, whether and to what extent step in rights apply, you know, those do remain absolutely varied and, and, and quite bespoke. Great.
0: Thank you very much, Andrew. And now let's turn to Oliver. So um, talking uh, more about uh, in the secondaries market. So one thing that we uh, are seeing is the provision of preferred equity at fund level. Um, can you just explain in simple terms what that is, please, Oliver?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Simon. So, so broadly speaking, it's the issuance of an equity instrument at the fund level, which will rank ahead of the ordinary fund interests or or commonly referred to as common equity so in that respect it's similar to a to a debt instrument The, the equity instrument attracts perhaps unsurprisingly given its title a a preferred return under the fund distribution waterfall which will rank ahead of the ordinary equity returns and then once that preferred return threshold is met the remaining proceeds would go typically to the ordinary equity holders and then here where we talk about Return thresholds. We've seen preferred equity instruments linked to aggregate returns at fund level, or indeed to returns on single or or a portfolio of assets. So it's it's very flexible.
0: Okay. Um, And how are these transactions typically structured? If we're we're putting them at fund level.
2: Yeah. So so that's that's an interesting topic. They're they're often very um, very bespoke, and it can vary. And that's actually one of the one of the big attractions of these transactions that we've seen people exploring, especially in the current market. So we've, to take a couple of examples, on the GP-led secondary transaction side, so where the transaction is initiated by by the GP, we've seen sponsors looking to issue a prep equity instrument at fund level where the existing LPs are then given optionality to either provide additional cash and participate in the preferred equity instrument to to remain invested in the ordinary equity, but but accept that you'll rank behind the preferred equity, or indeed to sell fund interest to the preferred equity provider or or another third-party secondary buyer. So there's significant optionality there. And on the LP-led secondary side, so where an LP is going out to market, the the single um, LP in a, in a cross fund portfolio of LP interest may look to a preferred equity provider to extend either a one-off payment or, or a revolving facility payment to the LP. And in return, the preferred equity provider would have priority over the distributions that that LP receives across its portfolio. And clearly, that, that's immensely helpful because an LP can, ex- can accelerate its liquidity or it can meet further capital calls in the short term using, using that funding. Um, thanks very much, Oliver. So, Looking at this, do you sort of compare and contrast with
0: you know, ordinary sort of debt and credit solutions? You know, what are the advantages of this? Why would people,
2: uh, why would people go for this? Uh, yes. Yeah, so, so to be blunt, I guess the most obvious difference is that there's typically no requirement to service cash interest on a, on a prep equity instrument. Um, there's also no fixed term for repayment no security over assets or LP commitments. And we typically see more limited maintenance tests and financial covenants than compared to to debt solutions. Um, I guess from a a GP perspective, the future upside on the ordinary equity is retained. But in the interim, there's an alignment of interest between the preferred equity investors and the GP and existing LPs. And preferred equity in general can afford the GP's LPs and, and the preferred equity providers themselves, more flexibility in a, in a, in a proceed sharing structure. Um, so in terms of the fund to fund waterfall, um, from a, from a process perspective, the GP may also have more flexibility around LP engagement and investor consent requirements, depending on the transaction and the fund documents If it's dealing with a prep equity instrument versus other secondary structures that we see and versus debt. Okay. And, um, and what are the, what are the disadvantages? So, so again, to be blunt, the, the key downside compared to debt solutions is, is the price. These instruments can be can be pretty expensive. Um, we've also seen some particularly complex tax tax implications, depending on structures that are proposed. Um, and actually, one of the other challenges with preferred equity has been that in recent times there have been a relatively small number of preferred equity providers in the secondaries market. Although I think. Um, and it reflects the secondaries market in general that that's changing at pace. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Um, so, turning now
0: to uh, Julia. Um, so, the past few years have seen the emergence of uh, sort of hybrid financing arrangements. So, fund financings taking a securitization form, which is something that's previously uh, relatively unusual uh, for funds. Um is this something that's fundamentally different to traditional forms of, of fund financing? Uh
3: it's a very good question, um Simon. Um I would probably start uh with the very basics here. Um so when someone mentions um securitization, uh most people outside um the structured debt world would think probably banks, mortgage lenders, portfolio of mortgages, other consumer assets. Publications, securities ratings, all all those wonderful things. Uh, but actually, uh, historically, um, public this public paradigm securitizations have always been only about a half of what we normally do in the structured debt um, space. Um, so historically, we've seen a very broad range of asset classes and structures, including bilateral and syndicated facilities with quite bespoke arrangements in terms of the covenant packages and and the underlying assets. So probably the better way to think about it uh, is, is it's a financing technique. Uh, it is a form of asset-based lending, uh, and it can be deployed uh, pretty much anywhere uh, where you have just a couple of building blocks present. So first of all, you have a pool of assets, which are returns from the broader commercial risk of an enterprise um, so that the funding... Um, the funder only has recourse to that specific pool of assets and doesn't look beyond that. And secondly, if you have debt financing, uh, which finances that pool of assets and that debt is trying, so for example, as the fund financing, you have a senior and then you have the equity in the form of, of, of debt, so we have like junior debt in the form of PPNs or income loan tracking notes, similar, then quite possibly, without knowing that, you may have a securitization on your hands. Um, so to put very simply, you can have a leverage facility, uh, which looks very, very similar to sort of your paradigm um leverage facility, fund facility uh which which is full recourse, but if you make it limited recourse to the assets and make a few other sort pretty subtle uh structuring tweaks, then you will have something which is a securitization
0: okay great and and obviously it goes without saying that you wouldn't want accidentally to have something which constituted a securitization exactly given, exactly yeah, yeah yeah given that some investors. Uh, you know, would, would, would have some penalties if they face that sort of exposure. So it needs, it needs to be something you deliberately choose to do. So um, So, so talking about the advantages of this over full recourse financing, could you could you pick out the highlights there?
3: Yeah, yeah, of course. So the main advantage is obviously uh, the pricing, um, because otherwise people probably wouldn't be doing this at all, because this is kind of not particularly familiar territory for uh, for the funds. Um, so why are these facilities attractive from the pricing perspective? Um, securitization facilities tend to be cheaper. And um, this is driven primarily by the regulatory capital treatment for lenders. Uh, so typically, they would hold less capital against senior tranches and securitization compared to a corporate to fund uh which allows them obviously to to offer better uh pricing plans to their clients. So uh that's why I think in this space what we've seen is is a real push uh from the lender side uh to uh to to do more of this uh of these facilities because that that's that's um more beneficial for them. They hold less capital, it's cheaper for funds and Therefore, um there has been sort of real push from from the lenders uh to do more of this um of this product.
0: Okay, great. Um and and what about uh, drawbacks that people should be watching out for? Um,
3: so obviously, as with all things new, um, there's always a bit of a learning curve uh, for people to get familiar with the relevant concepts and the documentation. So, for example, so if, um, in, in, in the normal trade debt space, um, some people have an irrational fear of the waterfalls, which is what we call our of payment So there will be a few things which um, don't look particularly familiar for somebody who hasn't uh, come across this before, uh, but um, if I have to pick uh, a few key points to, to bear in mind, um, I think I would flag um, the following um, to four. Uh, so First of all, um, fitting a securitization facility into an existing fund structure uh, may be quite fiddly, um, so it may be easier to think uh, about the relevant issues up front so before you start working sort of on, on new funds. Um, I'm not trying to say they can't be retrofitted, and we've done that with with some of our clients uh, who were trying to effectively refinance the existing leverage facilities uh, with a securitization facility in the form that definitely can't can be done and um, It just may require a little bit more work, so you may need to sort of do, to do some additional um, work uh, on to trying to fit it into into the existing structure properly. Um, Secondly, obviously there's some additional regulatory analysis uh, that will need to be done uh, particularly on something which we call risk retention or skin in the game, uh, which is broadly speaking the requirement that the person who puts the structure together uh, should continue to hold um, skin in the game or to junior debt um, in the deal for the life of the transaction. Uh, and the question here is always, what is the best uh, best entity within the fund structure to perform that role? Having said that, again, this isn't um, something which, which can't be um, structured around, and uh, we've yet seen a structure where we couldn't get there on the analysis, to be honest. Uh, then thirdly, um, on the commercial side, uh, perhaps one point to kind of to bear in mind is that um, uh, these facilities tend to be quite bespoke in terms of the package that the lender is offering, so uh, it's quite important to look around and uh, compare the terms very carefully and then pick the funder who provides the right view package for you. And then uh, the last point I would just flag, and again, this is quite an annoying aspect of the um, securitization regulation requirement, but again, not something that can't be overcome. Um, These reporting requirements uh, people need to be mindful of. Um, These are, unfortunately, quite extensive and prescriptive. Um, So reporting has to be done on a quarterly basis. Uh, in a particular format, which is prescribed by the regulator, uh, and normally this would come on top of the reports that the banks um, uh, require and and uh, will be actually reviewing. Um, having said that, um, there are service providers out there who can actually take outsourcing of this function, uh, and that makes life much easier. So some of our clients are not really sort of worried about this uh, once they've been through the analysis, and they've checked with their administrator that they can uh, actually provide the necessary assistance for that. Um, So, again, none of these things are insurmountable. Uh, Once you've been through the process once with your lender, you can just roll the documentation out for future funds and it becomes just a more commoditized process.
0: Okay, thanks, Julia. Um, So now can we move on to talk about any other areas of, of potential overlap uh, between the fund world and, and the securitization world? So you talked about securitization techniques. Can they be used in areas other than raising leveraged finance?
3: Yes, it's a very, very good question. So as I mentioned at the start, um, the way we'd like to kind of view this, um, the the securitization, it's a financing technique. Um, So you can actually use it to do a great number of things, uh, which you wouldn't probably even sort of think about as a securitization to begin with. Uh, So another area where we're seeing um, our structured debt expertise um, in, in high demand um, various structures whereby um, LP interests may be repackaged into securities or loans are uh, placed with investors who have um, a preference for fixed income securities or, or, or debt, but at the same time are quite interested in, in, in getting exposures to, uh, to the funds. And um, interestingly, although we would view this as a structure or securitization products uh, from a purely regulatory perspective, these structures would often not be securitizations, uh, which kind of makes that quite, quite attractive for certain categories of investors, uh, for example, insurers, um, etc. cetera. Uh, and uh, basically the, the rationale for that uh, would be that the structures would rely on the ability of the fund manager to manage the underlying funds mm. assets.
0: Okay, um, thank you. And can we talk now about the the main commercial drivers of that of that particular technique?
3: Yes, uh, of course. Uh, so th- this this is primarily uh, allowing uh, the funds to tap a broader pool of investors who cannot uh, invest in funds directly. And uh this is primarily um insurers um who have limitations on, on, on investing in funds. So what we've seen recently uh is, is a great deal of interest uh specifically kind of in this in this technology from um European and German insurers and also I think it's fair to say that it's it's quite popular and, and, and um, amongst the investors on the other side of, of the Atlantic as well, again, sort similar, similar investor-based insurers. So basically w- what's, what's happening with the structures is you have an underlying uh, fund interest and then you're trying to repackage this and create that instrument, which then can be bought by, by the uh, investors who otherwise can't um, uh, become piece in the funds.
0: Okay, and uh, are you seeing any sort of particular areas of the market where 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 this sort of structure is, is emerging?
3: Yes, so it has been quite quite popular, and we've seen a lot of interest. Uh, from uh both funds and uh also uh, investors uh, in in the secondary space. Um so secondaries seem to be um very much in fashion uh right now. So we've um closed a transaction a couple of weeks ago for one of our clients um, who's um a fund manager uh in the secondaries uh lots of interest uh from um the u s uh insurers uh in that product. uh we also know that other people in this space are also looking to to put together um sort of similar deals with either their own portfolios or sort of a mix of own and and so sourced portfolios. So it's 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 actually quite uh, quite a busy area right now. So emergence of the so-called CFOS or collateralized fund obligations, although some people prefer not to call them that, to sort of break the association with the sort of. Um, with the CDO uh, or CLO words, which is still considered to be um, something something of a bad word um, in, in the structure that space, so in, in other words, um, yes, yeah, so the secondary seem to, to have been pretty active in this in this in this space recently, and uh, we 're seeing a lot of interest in, uh, in structures which would allow to effectively transform the um, uh, the nature of the underlying exposure from um, sort of... Pool of fund interest to a debt security, which can be uh, bought by certain types of investors who wouldn't otherwise be able to, um, to invest.
0: Okay, great. Thank you very much, uh, Julia. So I think um, I think that's enough for now. So um, having listened to all of that, I mean, the things that I take away. So from Andrew, um, you know, we can see. The, the rapid development of fund financing markets over, o, over the past um, 10, 10 years, uh, but no mean, no, by no means solely uh, to, to, to the advantage of lenders, so there's a, you know, a, a constant tension there between uh, lenders and sponsors. Um, from Oliver, we heard about uh, the development of preferred equity and the sort of pros and cons of that when you might consider that um, in, in a fund structure. Uh, and from Julia, we we heard a, a, a really interesting uh, uh, description of securitization techniques and the and the ways that those are being deployed uh, on the buy side uh, part um, of the market. And I'm sure there's a you know a, a great uh, great many ways in which that will will develop over, over the years. So thank you very much to to Andrew, to Oliver, uh, and to Julia. Thank you also to all of you who are listening. Um, A recording of this podcast and others uh, in this uh, Clifford Chance on Credit series uh, can be found on the Clifford Chance website. You've been listening to the Clifford Chance podcast. Please subscribe to our podcast by visiting cliffordchance.com and follow us on LinkedIn. Thank you very much.